How many of you ladies were at the retreat this weekend? Let's see a show of hands. All right, very cool. How was it? That's the right answer. Brandy, feel good. No, I heard great things about it, and, and you see this lovely display behind us. That's from the women's retreat. It was all gussied up in here, so I'm glad you all had a good time. I, I was thinking, you know, what, what better way to follow a women's retreat than talk about warfare? So that's what we're going to do this morning. Just so y'all know, we, we don't work this stuff out ahead of time. This is just, it is where we are. <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 20, this is what Moses now begins to deal with as he's teaching the people. Preaching Torah, as we've talked about. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1, we'll just start with the first verse. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. They could immediately remember. Talk about remembering. They could remember having been brought up from Egypt. Battles won. Armies waylaid. Seas parted. An amazing journey. All they had to do was remember that and think, this is the God who is with us. No fear. We've seen what he can do. And so we trust in him. The Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. Lord, we know you're with us. And I pray, Father, you have obvious intentions here this morning with this passage, with what you want to teach, with what you want to say to us. I pray that each one of us would personally have ears to hear what your spirit is saying. I pray as a church, as a community of believers, that we would hear what you're saying. And that, Lord, whatever words come out of my mouth, they wouldn't get in the way of the words from your heart and what you desire for us. But I pray, Father, for a, just a surge of joy and confidence and trust in you in these times. And that our faith and our mission would be one and the same, would be bound up in Jesus Christ. Lord, as you walk us through this ancient sermon of Moses, as he applied these things for Israel, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would apply these things to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And you hear that from Jesus and immediately you might think, well, then how could he be the babe in Bethlehem? How, how could this be when it was told that he would bring peace, peace on earth? That's what the angels declared, right? And yet now Jesus is saying, nope, it's not why I came the first time. And what he's talking about here is not the reason for his coming. He's not saying, I came to bring war. He's talking about the effect of his coming, the consequence of his coming, that because he came in the world, truly the Prince of Peace, to offer and give peace, yet by his very coming into this sinful world, there would be war. There would be conflict. There would be fighting, even in our own families. That's the consequence of his coming. It's not the intention. It's not the reason. God's reason to this morning is still peace. But the consequence, obviously, and often is conflict. And you all have experienced it. And we have seen it in our own households at times. Conflict over Jesus. In our friendships, conflict over Jesus. In our relationships and in this world. Conflict even to feeling like sometimes you're at war just because you follow Jesus Christ. It's one thing to be armchair prophets. I happen to be one. I love to sit and think and talk about Matthew 24, wars and rumors of wars. <laughs> the birth pangs, yeah. It's one thing to talk about them. It's another thing to be in them and to be experiencing them. It's one thing to get hyped up about a prophecy update. It's another thing to be in pain over a relationship broken because you trust Jesus and the other does not. This is the reality of where we are, facing wars 
on the home front. And whether the battles are tangible or emotional or spiritual, I don't have to tell you that there are constants in every war. Every war will leave people wounded. Every war will ultimately debilitate. And every war will end up costing precious lives. War is serious business. And God takes it seriously. Don't think that he doesn't. Even though he commands Israel to go to war at times, it's never flippant with the Lord. It's never just because he feels like fighting. There's always reason and intention, and God takes it so seriously. And you know what? Think about this with me. One of the reasons so many followers of Jesus still to this day end up wounded and scarred in the Christian life and even in the church is a lack of preparation. It's a lack of understanding what it is that we are involved with, what we're doing as his followers, like soldiers going into battle with no training whatsoever. So let's get some training. I thought about this again on Friday, that it's, it's interesting to talk about training when I'm 57. Now you'd think by now I'd be trained. You think by now, some of you all who, who span a, a decade or more, or more than that, older than me, by now you would be trained, and I think many of you are, far better than I am, but, but there is ongoing training in the following of Jesus. And when we find ourselves hurt, find ourselves wounded, find ourselves fearful, fearful we got to go back to command central and get trained up again. Because this is the deal. Great, great joy. And a lot of pain in this life. Peace that you can't know any other way but through Jesus in the midst of conflict and war. Peter put it this way. This is first back, turn over here. First Peter chapter four. First Peter chapter four, verse 12, where Peter says something absolutely profound. And I think in our Christian lives in America 2021, we need to hear this again. It may change some perspective. First Peter chapter four, verse 12. Listen carefully to what the apostle wrote. First Peter 4, 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the decree that you share the sufferings of Christ. That word sufferings, pathos. It's a passionate suffering. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. And then he says this, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, oh, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you, verse 15, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Now, if I was writing that verse, and it's a good thing I didn't write scripture, but if I was, I'd say, make sure none of you suffers as an idiot. Because there are an awful lot of things that we suffer for that we need not suffer for. Things that we do that bring suffering in our own lives that are not part of the deal. They're not the issue. Verse 16, but if as a Christian you are not to be ashamed but are to glorify God in this name. Peter nails it. That's the key. Think about all the things in this life and in this culture, even right now, that people are fighting and suffering for. And the question we have to ask is, am I suffering for Jesus or am I suffering for me? I don't mean, are you suffering for me? I mean, are you suffering for you? Am I suffering for Jesus or am I just suffering because of my own values, my own positions, my own ideals, my own way of living? Think about 2,000 years of church history and where Christians have lived and what they have faced. Think about our brothers and sisters in Iran. Consider our brothers and sisters in North Korea and ask yourself, am I really suffering for Jesus? For Jesus, we are invited to fight. We are called to fight 
as foot soldiers of Jesus Christ. Not as foot soldiers of some other ideal or concept or even, dare I say, political position. That's not our battle. And I've continued to say this, especially recently, and I, and I don't want to get all in. Someone's going to come up and go, well, Rick, we need to talk politics. And you're missing what I'm saying. We can talk politics. We can have that discussion. I just spent a week at my parents' house. We had the discussion. <laughs> but is that my fight? If I'm a follower of Jesus. Now, if I'm not a follower of Jesus, fight your fight. Do your thing. But am I fighting for Jesus? Is he the focus, even of the focal point of the struggle in my life. If so, I will be blessed. If not, I'm bringing it on myself. Peter says in verse 19 of chapter four, therefore also, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Man, I could close the book right there. But we haven't even gotten to Deuteronomy 20, so let's get back there. Before we start back into Deuteronomy 20, as you turn back there, I want you to remember one more thing. Moses is working his way through the Ten Commandments. And as he works his way through the Ten Commandments, he's applying them, each one, in very unique and interesting ways throughout this section of Deuteronomy. I have found it fascinating to see, oh, oh, I see what he's talking about now. He's dealing with this commandment, and he's still in this section now He's talking about the commands to love your neighbor as yourself. So he's still in the position where he's dealing with specifically commandment number six, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. And he launches into this section on war where he declares that Israel will go to war. You shall not murder. But when you go to war, hey, the Bible distinguishes very clearly between war and murder, murder and war. Now, I'm not a warmonger. I don't like war. But understand that there is a difference that the Bible does not automatically equate the two. Murder is never justified. There are just wars, however. Murder is without regulation. Warfare has rules of engagement. Supposed to, anyway. Murder is always self-serving. Warfare is supervised by officers and commanders. War is not supposed to be every man for himself. Now, sometimes it will devolve into that, but that's not the idea. It's supposed to be managed in some way or another, whereas murder is not managed it just happens sometimes by passion. Other times it's, it's planned out in an evil or a wicked mind. And note that in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 9, Moses says, when the officers have finished speaking to the people, they shall appoint commanders of armies at the head of the people. Why? Because war is to be managed. Don't just go out there killing. Because that can fall into murder. The single purpose of murder is death. The purpose of war is victory. So the two aren't distinct, and Moses sees them distinctively. And is all war good? I'm not saying that. But freedom's good. And our freedom in this country has been hard fought. By the way, thank you for those of you who have served and continue to serve. Peace and security, <laughs> those are good. Sometimes you go to war because you want to maintain peace. We have communities and we have lives and we have ways of living and we want to be at peace in these places, in our homes and in our lives. And sometimes you've got to fight to keep that. That's a good thing. Putting down evil and wickedness is just as in the Second World War. These are things that often must be fought for because, again, we live in a fallen world. And when you live in a fallen world, there is going to be conflict even where the right is presented. So, God forbids and condemns murder, but he allows, he regulates, and at times he even calls for righteous war. Moses 
is still preaching on the plains of Moab, across the Jordan from the Jericho. And remember, this is a sermon of final preparation. And so what he does here is he turns to words before war. The first thing that the Lord through Moses called for, and this was before any battle, was a little devotional service. Before they fought, before they headed into war, they were to stop and have a little worship, have a little time of focus. Watch this, verse 2. When you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. This was prescribed. This is what the priest was to say. Gather the forces around. Muster the troops and bring in the priest and have him preach that the Lord is with you. Don't be afraid. Trust in him. This is a divine perspective that God wanted Israel to carry into every battle. By the way, we can too. The divine perspective is God is the warrior, not you. God is the fighter, not me. Isaiah 42, 12, let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He'll utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. Now that sounds good to me. He won't fail. He will prevail. He won't fall apart. He will be victorious. I want to be on that team. That's what I desire. And again, I'm telling you all, if it isn't about following Jesus, it is not my war to fight. It isn't my war to win. If I'm following Jesus, it's his war and it is one. And I know I'm repeating what many of you have heard and know. People look at the book of Revelation, they say, the book of Revelation is summed up in one thought, God wins. Okay, I think it's summed up in one thought, Jesus. (laughs) Because it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. But if I'm following him, listen, my struggles and my own personal skirmishes, they tend to cause unnecessary suffering and pain for myself and for others. So God would say, I believe to you and to me this morning, keep your eyes on Jesus. Fight that war. Fight those battles. Eyes on his warfare. Remember that Jesus is our high priest. And so just as, interesting, the priest came out, was to come out before the mustard troops and give this teaching. So on the night of his betrayal, our great high priest came out before all the warfare of the ages, of the last 2,000 years. And Jesus said in John 14, 1, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He said in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. What did the priest say? Do not be faint-hearted, do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. Jesus fulfilled this. Jesus on the night, of, he had the presence of mind that still amazes me that on betrayal night in the midst of the wickedness and darkness and betrayal that was taking place right behind his back, he had the presence of mind to say to the apostles, like a priest before warfare, do not be afraid. Trust in God, trust in me. High priestly preparation before all the battles. Jesus gave us the divine perspective. But, but this is curious now. Very strange to me where Moses goes from here because he begins to launch into a series of exemptions from military service. Watch this, verse five. The officers also shall speak to the people, saying, who is the man that has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him depart and return to his house, otherwise he might die in the battle and another man would dedicate it. Who is the man who's planted a vineyard and has not begun to use its fruit? Let him depart and return to his house. Otherwise, he might die in the battle and another man would begin to use its fruit. Who is the man that is engaged to a woman and has not married her or literally has not taken her? Let him depart and return to his house. Otherwise, he might die in the battle and another man 
would marry her. I remember what my brother said at my wedding. He was giving the toast, and he said, we're also thankful for Cheryl because if not for her, Rick would be alone or married to somebody else. There's a brilliance in that somewhere. I I have yet to find it. (laughs) But you you have a woman, you're betrothed, you're engaged, and you haven't taken her yet as your wife. Go home, go home. And then verse 8, then the officers shall speak further to the people and say, who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house so that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. Okay. These are words of honorable discharge, mostly, before war. Four exemptions that the officers before any battle were to declare that the men gathered there would hear and say, okay, exempt, 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 go home. If this happens to be you, if this falls into where you're at. So here are the four exceptions. Again, let's think them through. Number one, an undedicated house. The idea is you have a newly built home that has yet to be dedicated, um, consecrated, consecrated. Now, we can come up with all kinds of things about what it means to consecrate a house. Does that mean that we dab oil on the door frames? Does that mean we pray over it? Is there some kind of ritual, some ceremony that we're supposed to you know, engage in or that Israel was supposed to when they built a house, when we built my house? We went around when it was all framed, the the kids and Cheryl and I, and we wrote verses above all the doors. I have no idea what they are now. Someone came over and they, you know, they just covered them all up. So now I don't know. But I know there are verses under those. And it was a great exercise to kind of focus on what is this house for and, and what are our hearts to be with this place. Is that what he means? Consecrate the house? Think about this. Who among us have tried to enter into spiritual battles when our own homes are undedicated. The word dedicated here, it'll be familiar to you in just a moment. It's the word chanak, chanak, consecrated. But it also means trained up for a purpose. That's interesting. Trained up for a purpose, even discipled or disciplined. So it still leaves us with the question, all right, but how do I consecrate a house? And if my house is undedicated to the Lord, can I dedicate it now? The answer is yes. In fact, the answer is before you fight another spiritual battle in the name of Jesus, go dedicate your house. Dedicate your family. Consecrate your household. How? It's very simple. Turn over to Psalm 30. Psalm 30, where we have a great practical example of a house dedicated Psalm 30, this is a psalm. It says thanksgiving for deliverance from death, but it, that, that's, that's, what the, that's what the translator stuck in there. I like David's description much better. He calls it a psalm, a song at the dedication of the house. So it's totally applicable. The undedicated house, there's a psalm of the de- dedication of the house. This is how you dedicate your house. So watch this. A psalm. Song at the dedication of the house of David. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I, I cried to you for help and you healed me. O Lord, you brought up my soul from Sheol. You've kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Now, the first four verses, what David is singing praise for is that God brought him out of very difficult times, 10 years worth, from when he was anointed as a boy to be king to when he actually became king, 10 years of being chased by the first king of Israel, Saul, and hiding out in caves and moving from one place to the next. And we'll, we'll, Lord willing, get to those stories of David. And they're amazing. But it was a tough decade. And now at the end of that decade, oh, David has been been consecrated. He's been dedicated himself as king, anointed there. And he's got what's called David's tabernacle. 
That's the house he's talking about. Some have tried to say, well, no, it's it's David's palace down in the city of David. I I don't believe so. I believe it's the tabernacle itself because the story of the tabernacle emerges in this psalm. You're going to get several teachings this morning, by the way. But check this out. The first four verses, David is just praising God for bringing him through. And then all of a sudden in verse 5, for his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. When was God angry for a moment when Uzzah reached out to stop the ark from falling off the cart when David was bringing it up to Jerusalem? Uzzah reaches out, touches it, and instantly dies. That was not the way the ark was to be carried on a cart. Supposed to be on poles and carried by the priests and taken in worship. Well, David figured that out. It took a death. It took sorrow. It, it took anger in the moment and weeping for the night, but a shout of joy in the morning. David would leave the ark, the house of Obed Edom, for quite a season as he went back to figure out what went wrong. And then he figured it out. Verse six, now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. I'm doing well. I've got a house. Everything's great. Wait a minute, the ark. Verse seven, O Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain to stand strong. That's Mount Zion. You hid your face and I was dismayed. So why was David dismayed? Because the ark was delayed. To you, O Lord, I called To the Lord I made supplication, and here comes the dedication. Ready? What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you Forever, David's house, the tabernacle, not his house in the city of David, but on the temple mount. This is a psalm of dedication. Note again where David wrote a song at the dedication of the house, the word dedication, Hanukkah. It's Hanukkah. Now, it's not connected to Hanukkah, but that's where the word Hanukkah comes from. Hanukkah is the feast of dedication. And that was later when the Jews would rededicate the house after it had come under some severe attack. That's another story, so many stories. But, but David is now dedicating, he's giving dedication, Hanak, Hanukkah, for the house when the ark was established there, and that's the key to dedicating a house. The, the key to consecrating a household. What? It's the place where God is present, petitioned, and praised. He's present as the ark would be present and the glory of God there in David's house, David's tabernacle. He is petitioned. That's where the prayers go. God said, I will meet you there from the mercy seat. And praised and worshiped the place of all the focus of their worship. A dedicated house is a house where there may be weeping at night, but there is joy in the morning because the dedication is to the Lord. Soldier, if your house remains undedicated, go home. Not right now, wait till I'm done. If it's not a house where God is present, if it's not a place where God is petitioned in prayer, if it's not a place where he is honored and praised and thanked, and I mean often, go home and start over. Preparation before war. Don't try to go fight battles in the name even of Jesus with an undedicated house because our strength starts right at home and we go out from there. So it was an undedicated house. If if they had that, go home. How about an undeveloped fruit? An undeveloped fruit. Who's the man who planted a vineyard back in Deuteronomy 20 verse six and has not begun to see its fruit? Let him go home and have an apple, man. Pick some grapes, enjoy the fruit of the land. Why? Because God had given the land to the people as inheritance. And it was still of primary importance. God wanted his people to enjoy the fruit of their inheritance in the land and not to be so focused on warfare that they forget what it's for. 
It's for the inheritance. It's about the land. It's that there might be peace and enjoyment of God's blessings. So if, if you have a vineyard, if you have a, 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 an orchard, if you've got a fruitful land and you have not experienced or enjoyed its fruit, go home and enjoy it. Now in Israel, that was simple. I have a newly planted vineyard. I can't go fight. I got to go pick. Got to go enjoy. And they were given freedom, exemption to go do that. Let me ask you this question. Do you enjoy the fruit before the fight? Or do we launch all off on some crusade to fight for Jesus, but we haven't enjoyed the fruit yet? The fruit. You know where I'm going with this. Galatians 5.21. How many times have we read this? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, that's a very common verse in Christian circles, and we've read it so many times, I don't even know how many times over the years. We've gone right back to the fruit of the Spirit again and again and again. Here's the point this morning. Too many want to fight without the fruit. They want to engage. They want to be tough for God. Well, hold on there, General Sherman. The Lord would say to you and to me, if you engage without first developing and yes, enjoying the fruit of your inheritance, you will find yourself fighting all the wrong battles. If you don't know the love and the joy and the peace that comes of the Lord, if you are not developed in the patience and kindness and goodness, you will, not, you will damage and wound and there will be all kinds of friendly fire. If you're not walking in faithfulness, gentleness, and check this one out for warfare, self-control, you're gonna battle wrong. You're gonna hurt others. You're gonna end up in the wrong fight. The Lord would say, develop the fruit first and then go fight. Don't get it out of order. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verse 3, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. How many arguments have you and I been in in the last year alone that have not been about the administration of God by faith? About all kinds of other things. Paul says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And the only way I can fight that battle, the battle for love from a pure heart, is with cultivated fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. How, how do I cultivate it? It's very simple. Paul explains that in the next few verses. Galatians 5, 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's the I want. I'm killing off the I want. I want to know what he wants. And then Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let's also walk by the Spirit. We do that and we will be prepared to fight the right fight. Undedicated house, Dedicated to the Lord, place of his presence and our petition and our praise of him. And, and an undeveloped fruit, man, get back, walk in the spirit, pray in the spirit, seek to develop those things, the fruit of the spirit, absolutely vital in scripture. And then, then back in Deuteronomy 20, they're told, yeah, and if you have an undevoted marriage, go home, go home. Proverbs 5 this is great. Proverbs 5.18. Kind of glad my wife's not here right now because this kind of stuff always embarrasses her. She'll be here second service, so I'll take care of it then. <laughs> Proverbs 5.18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind, that is a deer, a, a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. This is Bible, man. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace, embrace the bosom of a foreigner? Lord, thank you for writing that in your word. Here's the point. God gave us 
marriage between a man and a woman to be a blessing, to be enjoyed, to be exhilarating, not debilitating, as it sometimes can be. It's, by the way, it's our selfish humanity that causes that. It's my selfish desires that brings conflict into my marriage where conflict does not belong. Remember, I leave the conflict and I go home to be with my bride before the conflict. I don't bring the conflict with me into my marriage. And the reason we do, it's the sin nature. It's the selfishness. I've said before, the number one thing to beat the selfishness out of you is marriage. Because then you got to be there for the other, whether you want to be or not. And there are days I don't want to be. But we are called to this, that, that husbands and wives, listen, too many husbands and wives are off fighting battles at the office, struggling for worldly success, some kind of self-sufficiency or, or self-fulfillment outside of the marriage, and it's to the harm of their marriages, and God wants his people to enjoy marriage. Do you realize with this one that the young man who was married got two years off from any kind of service of war? Two full years that he, that he could take off. If he's engaged, then he goes and there's work to be done in the engagement and preparation for the marriage itself and that was a year and then once they got married, he got another year before the battle. Before the battle. Which I find really fascinating because Jesus will take seven with his bride before the battle. Malachi chapter 2 verse 13 says the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously though she is your companion and your wife by covenant see when we talk about marriage in America today people have no idea how serious God is about covenant and marriage you know it's about aside from the new covenant it's the only covenant of God that we've got in this day and age as, as Gentiles the new covenant, wonderful, and the covenant of marriage. And he says, you fight for that. You don't fight in that. And then he says this. He says, Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. What? He says, not one has dealt treacherously in their marriage who has a remnant of the Spirit. Meaning? Meaning if you're walking in the spirit, you're not gonna deal treacherously. If you're not walking in the spirit, that's where treachery enters a marriage. You can't walk in the spirit if your feet are chasing after someone or something other than your spouse. And I know I'm talking to married couples here for just a moment. Trust me, this is gonna apply to everybody. But you can't walk in the spirit if you're chasing down other things. You know, and you, I, I'm sure you've been there, I have, where you find your feet going in a direction that is away from Jesus, and so you shut down thoughts of Jesus. I'll think about him later. I'll, uh, you know, I'll repent at church on Sunday. And off you go. You can't walk in the Spirit and walk away from Jesus. But if you're walking in his footsteps, if you're walking in the Spirit, then your marriage will benefit for it. But, but here, the point is, in Deuteronomy 20, again, if you've got a young bride at home, go to her before you go to war. And keep that in mind, we come to the last exemption, and to me it's the most curious. It's the exemption of what I would call a disheartening fear. A disheartening fear. He says again in verse eight, the officer shall speak further to the people and say, who's the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house so that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. Exempt, go home, you're out of here. If you're faint-hearted, if you're afraid of the enemy, Moses says the last place we need you is on the front line. Because if you're afraid on the front line, then you're gonna bum out your fellow soldiers they're gonna start to tremble along with you. You know who I'm talking about in the church. I'm talking about Corporal Complainer. <laughs> Sailor Sad Sack, he's a lot of fun to be around. Or Private Victim. Those who stand and they're supposed to be there to fight with you, but they're just bringing you down. God isn't looking for victims. He's looking for faithful people. 
These are discouragers, however, in the, in the fight of faith. And Moses says, we don't even want you in battle for Israel, but talking about our faith. Man, if you are fearful, stop and go home. Where? To that dedicated house in the presence of the Lord where you can petition him and praise him again. Because see, then, then your strength will rise. Then your courage will be encouraged and you can come back and fight. But if you're failing there, man, step out of the fight and worship God. Step out of the fight and get back into prayer. In fact, I would suggest if you happen to be a discourager on the front line of faith, if you happen to tend to be somewhat of an Eeyore, you know the type. Everyone else is worshiping and they're going, oh, I've just got so many problems. God's been there for them, but he's never really been there for me. I have, I have a solution for you. Victims and discouragers and, and those who are sad and, and, and fearful in faith or fearful without faith, I would suggest to you one little word. It's the right time of year, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. More than anything else in my life, I have discovered that Thanksgiving effectively shuts down discouragement, self-discouragement. When I'm bummed, when I'm upset, when I'm worried. The Bible says, in everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Paul says, that's God's will. What's God's will for my life? Thanksgiving. I mean, let's talk turkey. He means that recognition that, that God has blessed you. But if I'm the victim, I'm not seeing the blessings. I'm just seeing my problems and I'm fighting all the wrong fights. Be thankful. You, can, you know what, you can't be thankful without recognizing what you're thankful for. You gotta think about the blessings. You gotta look at the life that he has given you, and, and okay, what can, I, can you come up with one thing? Two? Can you make a list of 10 things that you're actually thankful for? Do that, and then continue to go over it. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I suggest to you, it's a great way to pray. In fact, I suggest to you, don't pray without beginning with thanksgiving. Let your prayers begin there. Father in heaven, you're holy, you're awesome, you're wonderful. Thank you, Lord, for this breath of life you've given me that I can pray with. Thank you, Lord, that I have a fellowship that I can come worship with. Thank you, Lord, that you spoke your word to us. I mean, we can go on. We can spend the rest of our time just giving thanksgiving. Be thankful. We don't need Brigadier Bummer on the battlefield. <laughs> we need thankful people. Moses says, send him home till he can learn to encourage people. Encouragers are always the best ones to have in the battalion, by the way. Check this out, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11. Actually, I'll start back at verse nine because it's so good. God has not destined us for wrath. That's pretty absolute, by the way. But for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as also you are doing. This is, this is ground zero for the faith. This is where the church needs to be, building each other up, encouraging each other in the faith and not tearing down. Why? Because the Christian life is a battle. Because it's not for the faint-hearted. We need strong, encouraged hearts. But back in Deuteronomy 20, here's the thing that's bizarre to me. For all of these exemptions, house, fruit, spouse, fear. You might wonder, wouldn't Israel need every fighting soldier? I mean, what kind of pre-warfare advice is this, really? If you've got a new fruit, go home. New house, go home. New wife, go home. A little bit afraid, go home. Everybody would leave. You'd have one guy standing there going, who? It's just, it's strange advice. It's like the anti-draft. 
You know, who doesn't want to fight today? Well, I don't want to fight. Go home. Okay, see you later. Honorable discharge. And off you go. New house, new, new vineyard, new wet, newly wed. It, it's just, and if you're a little anxious, go home. No big. It is so contrary to church thinking. What? Church thinking is all hands on deck. Come on, folks, come on. We need you to show up. We need more volunteers. We need volunteers and children's, I can tell you that right now. We need help with the harvest festival. We need people showing up. We need people in prayer groups. We need small groups. Do you have a small group in your home? We need you to sign up for that right now. We've got all this stuff, and that's our, our thinking and our, our feelings. And who hasn't been disappointed when a fellow saint leaves you standing alone? We need you there. Come on, man. This is why pastors guilt trip people. I know. I know how this works. It's because our mentality is, man, we need everybody there. And you end up with followers, pastors, church leaders who have the Elijah complex. You know the the one, he's just, he's terrified of Jezebel. It's an amazing story because Elijah took on the 400 prophets of Baal, not to mention all the prophets of Asherah, wiped them all out, and Jezebel says, I'm coming after you, and now he's running scared. 400 plus prophets, one woman. I don't get it. And he makes his way all the way down, 40 days and 40 nights, to Mount Horeb, the Mount of God, and hides in a cave. And in that cave, the Lord Elijah, what are you doing? 1 Kings 19.10. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and none of them will sign up for children's ministry. (laughs) And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Ever felt that way? Nobody's getting it. Nobody's fighting the right fight. Nobody's with me in this. I'm all alone. Last man standing. Last woman of real faith. It's pretty arrogant, actually, to think that I'm the last one who gets it. Really? And so the wind raged. The mountain rocked and the fire burned and God wasn't in any of that. Instead, Elijah hears a gentle blowing in the NASB, in the King James translation, the still small voice, but not small as in wimpy. No, the, the, the actual translation probably would be best like a soft, quiet calm. God doesn't come raging in when we are saying, we need help. We're alone in this. I need fighting men, fighting women. Come on, Lord, we got to get this church on the move. He doesn't come in going, yeah, baby. In fact, was the last teaching we talked about that God's voice thunders, and there are times where God thunders, but when we are all about the busyness, God comes quietly, and with that gentle calm. And you know what he did? He doesn't even acknowledge Elijah's whining. He just comes with his final three assignments, needs him to anoint some people, and then go find Elisha, and then God says this, 1 Kings 19, 18, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. It doesn't take God shouting for us to know that there are always faithful soldiers before us and beside us. Always. You never fight alone. You may feel alone, you are not alone. There are times where I recall this. In fact, I, I, I think in my own little head, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just a pastor on North Whidbey Island. And then I think, but, but I'm a pastor in a long line of pastors and, and, and ministers of the gospel for 2,000 years. I'm not the last man standing. I'm one of many. And then I think about our fellowship. And I think I'm not the only one here. As long as two or three, by the way, are gathered in this place, we'll be here. I'm not the last guy. And then I start to think about the church right now in the world. Guess what? We are not falling apart. 
The church in America may be looking a little wonky these days, but the church worldwide is still standing, folks. People are still faithful to the Lord. The church of God will not fall. Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail over it. You know what that means? It means the church will never die. It will only be caught up. And so I have that great encouragement. I am not alone in this. And then I look at Hebrews chapter 12 and realize I've got a great cloud of witnesses. So not even for those who are standing here, but all those who have died in the faith who are part of that cloud of witnesses. In fact, when it says Jesus comes on the clouds, I believe that's what it's talking about. Clouds of witnesses following him as he returns in his glorious appearing. We are not alone in this. So you don't have to worry about it. Someone's fearful, go home. Someone's newly wet, go home. It's okay, God's got it covered. We've got it taken care of, he does. But you know what? Even more than all of that, I have fellow soldiers. There are faithful men and women in this fellowship. You have no idea, because I don't have time to email everyone. You have no idea how encouraging it is. To see, I walked in here Friday night. I had to, or no, was, was it last night? It was last night. I walked in here last night, and I had to grab an iPad out of my office. There was so much, much estrogen here, I had to get in and out quickly. <laughs> Get the iPad, get home. But I walked in and I, and I saw all the ladies here and the joy and what was taking place and I thought, man, how cool is that? How cool is that? I ran into Leanne. I said, I'm getting out of here. And she goes, I know, it's too much estrogen. So, I mean, she, she understood. <laughs> and then I think she called me a wimp or something like that. I don't know, maybe not, no, maybe not. But you know what? It's just, it's, I love to see Things taking place. And it's not me. It's us. And it's that great cloud of witnesses. And it's our faithful, it's our faithful battalion right here in North Whidbey Island fighting together. But here's the thing. Listen to me on this. Even if not another person stood, even if you were the last one standing in faith, all the others ultimately are irrelevant because... Deuteronomy 20, verse four, the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to save you. Edward J. Woods said, such an idealistic view of life in which the value of family, the community, and personal well-being take precedence over that of war, which revealed a somewhat subdued and ambivalent stance on warfare, such an idealistic view was possible only because of the profound conviction that military strength and victory lay in the last resort, not in the army, but in God. And that's the point. The army could fall apart and run off the battlefield and you could be standing there alone with your little Bible to try and fight off the enemy and you're not alone. Because ultimately you're not even the one doing the fighting. You're standing behind Yahweh. The battle is the Lord's. And the whole idea of these words before war is the fighter's focus. See, here's the point. If my mind is trailing off to some undedicated home or undeveloped fruit or undevoted marriage, if I'm giving in to disheartening fear, then my aim is going to be way off. My focus distracted and disabled. <laughs> some of you might even say this morning, well, yeah. See, that's my problem. My house is not always the most dedicated. My fruit? Man, I read that list in Galatians 5, and I fall woefully short in every one of the nine. You might say, my spouse isn't even a believer. Or my marriage is a mess. You might say, doesn't apply to me because I'm not even married. And honestly, if we're being honest, we have all experienced fear and doubts and faint-heartedness. You know what the problem is? In each and every case, the, issues is, the issue is our eyes have gotten off of the Lord. These are all the other concerns. So God says, if those concerns are going on, go take care of those. 
go deal with those. Rather than head us, have us head off in some crusade, some foolish, unprepared battle, Moses reminds the people, he says, Yahweh's the warrior. So if you're faint-hearted, don't go fight. God's got it. If your home is a problem, if your marriage is a problem, if anything's, Proverbs 21.30 says, there is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. Don't just take that as a common Christian theme. The battle belongs to the Lord. I get it. Victory is God's. Okay, he wins, fine. No, 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 wait a minute. Think about that. The battle belongs to the Lord. He will do battle for your home. If it is an undedicated place, man, all you gotta do is dedicate it to him. He will do battle for it. He will develop the fruit in your life. It's the fruit of the spirit, not the fruit of Rick. Not the fruit of Bill, the fruit of Lisa. It is the fruit of the spirit. You don't develop it, he does. You just ask. You just seek to stay in step with the spirit, walk in him. If you're married, he's the source of joyful victory in a marriage. And by the way, if you're not married, let's leave that campaign up to him as well. It's still his deal. It's still his hand. It's still his battle. And if you're fearful, as we all can be, Jesus says, John 16, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you have tribulation. But take courage, I've overcome the world. Paul says, Romans 8, 36, as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Victory belongs to the Lord. In the little things back home and on the battlefield, well, if victory belongs to the Lord, then how do I fight? Worship. Worship. Let me encourage you, by the way. I know it's hard to get up on a dreary Sunday morning. Let me just encourage you again not to use the worship as the intro to the morning, but as the most important part. To not slide, and I'm, I don't know who was here because I was looking actually, I, I can't see very well from up there. So I don't know who was here during the first song or second song and I've, I've actually addressed this before. But you know what? We get to the movies early enough to watch the previews of all things. And we can't get to church for the first note of worship? Let me just put that out there for you. There you go. You do with that as you will. How do I fight? I want to fight. I want to be a better warrior. Well, start by worship. Lift that up in its primacy in your life and pray. Keep your eyes fixed on the holy commander in chief. Hebrews 12.1, we do have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. So let's lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let's run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter or finisher of faith. By the way, that word perfecter, Finisher, it's the same word Jesus used on the cross when he said it is finished. He's the one who finishes the fight. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Why do we quote, quote that so much? Listen, because we have one message. We have one message mission we have one listen to me mandate that word is being thrown around a lot today isn't it we have one mandate and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ that's our battle that's what we're here to fight nothing else and I'm watching right now and it truly does concern me I'm watching brothers and sisters who are getting wrapped up in the politics of the fight. Is it about the gospel? Is it about Jesus? That is my fight. Because I guarantee you in Rome, Christians were not well treated. 
In America today, though we would wish that it would be other, in America today, our fight is still the gospel. It is still the good news. One mandate, and don't miss this. We're gonna end with this. We don't go to war. We don't battle to bruise. We don't fight to conquer. We don't make war to kill. Be victorious in and of ourselves. We have one marching order. It is to deliver the message of the gospel. Watch this, Deuteronomy 20, verse nine. When the officers have finished speaking to the people, they shall appoint commanders of the armies at the head of the people. And when you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. Before you raise a single armament, before you lift a spear, before you raise the weapon, peace. That's our message. That is our focus, peace. Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. But this is more than that. This isn't just about getting along. Right in the middle of, of taking inventory of the full armor of God, the belt of truth and breastplate of righteousness and shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit and even prayer. In the middle of all of that, Paul says, Ephesians 6, 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Meaning what? Meaning before you go to war, know why you're going to war. Before you fight, you put on the gospel. You bring the gospel. You offer the gospel of peace. That's what the Bible calls the gospel. It's the gospel of peace. We come with a message of peace and it's not peace through tolerance and it's not peace through appeasement and it's not peace by caving in to sin. It is peace by the strength of God blood-bought at the cross of Jesus. That is our message. And I will say it until I'm blue in the face. By the way, how do you kill a blue elephant? You shoot it with a blue elephant gun, right? How do you kill a pink elephant? You hold its nose until it turns blue and you shoot it with a blue elephant gun. <laughs> the gospel of peace. Why, why do I do that, Jake? I, I, don't, I don't know. I think, I think maybe it's so that you can be real clear on who the idiot is and, and, and who the spirit is. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. That is our mission. The gospel of peace, that is our message. Peace by the way of the cross. Therefore, having been justified by faith, Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. So this morning as we conclude, what is your fight? What's your battle? What is taking up all the oxygen in the room of our homes right now? And our conversations with our friends, what is the fight? What are we in this for? What's the current conflict? Because listen, no matter what the current conflict is in our world, there will be a new one next year. There was a different one three years ago. There will be another one in 10 years, Lord willing, if we're still here, the saints haven't been caught up. 20 years ago, what was the conflict? Not what it is now. There are always conflicts in culture. There are always things going on. There are always things that we can be drawn into and pulled away from the one message of the gospel of Jesus. That is our focus. And it's real easy to know what your current conflict is. It's the one you're stressing the most over. It's the one that upsets you the most. How upset are we that people are dying in their sins? How upset are we that people are gonna go to hell if Jesus comes today? The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Are my feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace? As Isaiah said, Isaiah 52, seven, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Your God reigns, that is peace through strength, his strength, and not ours.
Now, if the gospel of peace is rejected, war will come. But we'll talk about that next week. Let's stand up together. I want to leave you with this. There's so many skirmishes, so many moral battles, conflicts that we can be drawn into. I believe as followers of Jesus, we need to continually ask him this question, Lord, is this your battle? Lord, is this your battle? And is the ultimate outcome of my fight the gospel of peace? That's our marching order. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We bless your name. We need you. I confess, Lord, how quickly, how easily I end up fighting all the wrong fights. It's so typical of me, Father, to be engaged in things that are not yours. Father, my flesh just wants me to go in all kinds of directions. I think, Lord, it's the devil who wants us to fight any fight but the one that will save lives through the blood of Jesus. So this morning, we ask that you would recenter our thinking. Father, that you would would refocus our hearts on Jesus and the message of the gospel to be truly peacemakers, lovers of the peace of God in Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, speak to us, convict us, challenge us, and bring us back to our great commission. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.